Well, good morning, Anchorage Grace. What a glorious time of worship we've had so far. You know, I was thinking about people who might be here for the first time. If you're here for the first time, I'm not going to embarrass you this morning, but I just want to greet you personally um, from the bottom of my heart, and I'm sure all of our hearts, we're so glad to have you here. And if you haven't been here for a long while, or if you're here for the first time, just Maybe register your attendance and drop it in the offering box in the back. That way uh, we can pray for you and greet you appropriately. If you have prayer requests or things that are on your heart, I actually see these every week and uh, pray for the requests that are given to me. So I would be privileged and honored to pray with you and for you uh, as you are continuing to uh, just integrate yourself into our body, and we are so blessed to have you here this morning. In terms of what's going on in the life of our church, and uh, this announcement also uh, is in conjunction with our school, too, uh, this Monday coming is Martin Luther King Day, and so we have no school, and our office will be closed down tomorrow. I uh, leaned over to Judy, my wife, first hour, and said, hey, did we used to shut homeschooling down, you know, on the national holidays? And She thought about it, and I guess she decided we did. And so that's for free to any of the kids that want to kind of nudge their parents and say, hey, see, the pastor and his wife used to do it. So anyway, any of you homeschool families, you can use that card um, willingly and just send the parents to me. Also, um, we we have for our Awana ministry, which is kind of blowing at the seams. We've got a lot of kids from all over the church community and hopefully just uh, even people who are unchurched involving themselves in our Awana ministry. We've got a Grand Prix coming up in two weeks. Uh, I, we have the kind of car building Saturdays yesterday and this coming Saturday where I built three cars, or actually my kids did. Two of them actually work. And anyway, but, uh, you know, one of them still needs some, you know, realignment or something. I think Rich, Rich Klein's gonna help me out with that. All that to say, uh, Pray for the uh, the tournament coming up. It's a great opportunity for uh, us to share Christ. I'm going to be sharing the gospel during that time, and it's a great time for our church and kids. But that's coming up. Also, this Sunday coming, we have six baptisms, and I think we have even more that we're scheduling down the road. But we've got several children and youth who desire to be baptized, who are following in the Lord's obedience to declare that they are saved. And so we want to pray for them. And be sure to come and be sure to, uh, you know, support those who are candidates coming to be baptized. We're excited to stir the waters of baptism here at our church together. One final announcement. This is a ministry opportunity. It's the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Uh, probably there are several of you who are involved in this ministry or, um, or who have been in the past, but there is a training uh, session coming up February 5th and 6th. If you have a heart to counsel and minister to people in need, this is a way to do it. We regularly give and support, give to and support this ministry. So please avail yourself of this flyer on the back. It shows volunteer position descriptions and kind of lays out expectations and what it means to be a counselor in this ministry. All right? Well, let's pray together one more time as we approach the Word of God. Father, we thank you for this morning, God. This is your time where we can focus on your Word and delight in your law and trust in your truth. And I pray, God, that you would energize our hearts with faith this morning to embrace what's here. Because, God, we are in desperate need of the truths that we are going to find and discover in First Thessalonians 4. God, we love the resurrection. 
We love the theme that you are coming again and that, Lord, we will be raised in glory with you. So, God, I pray that you would stoke our hearts and fire us up, Lord, with your word this morning by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, this Christmas holiday, I was given one of my favorite gifts, and that is uh, books. Uh, And I actually got one of the books that I got was a book from uh, a friend of mine who really wanted me to read uh, a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven, An Inspiring Story of Life Beyond Death by Don Piper. Who's heard of that book? Yeah, well, I read it and finished it this week. And uh, it was a curious title when I first saw it shelved in a Christian bookstore, and so I was glad to receive it. And especially when I heard that, uh, you know, a half million people have bought this book and have been reading it. And any time everybody's reading a book, we probably should read it or find out what's there just to know what people are thinking about and talking about. It's kind of a tragic story. It's a testimony of Don Piper, this Baptist minister who was leaving a Baptist conference in Texas, and he went out on a bridge and ultimately, probably through inclement weather and a careless tractor-trailer driver who went over into his lane, had a head-on collision, and ultimately the tractor-trailer crushed his car and crushed his body under the wheels. So much so that the EMTs, when they showed up, took the waterproof tarp and laid it over his body and face and pronounced him dead. They didn't even use the jaws of life at that point to take him out of the crushed car. And so it's a mini-biography where he's leading up to that event. And so a third of the story is about that. And then a third of the story is the 90 minutes that he was under the tarp where he is claiming to have gone to heaven in one form or fashion, and the descriptions that he finds in that time. And then the end of the book, the last third, is about his recovery, his convalescence and, and uh, rehab, and some frequently asked questions about life, um, uh, sort, of, sort of death experiences and heaven experiences. One thing that struck me about this book in reading it, it's a short book, is that the focus of heaven for Don Piper is relationships and people that were lost loved ones that meet him on the outskirts of heaven. And I'm not here to critique his book or to say things negative about Don or his motive for writing the book. I I think that he probably has a great motive for writing the book and he's had an incredible audience to talk about his experience and talk about heaven. No reason to doubt his sincerity. Um, for writing the book, but something is glaringly missing in his encounter in heaven, and that is there is a minimal mention of Jesus in his experience in heaven. Now, he's talking about being on the outskirts and Jesus' presence is afar off, but when I look at Scripture and I look at the Bible and I think about heaven, Jesus is always there at front and center. Jesus is the point of heaven, along with the relationships that we will be reunited with and the lack of suffering and dying and sin being shrugged off and all those things are there. But Jesus is at front and center of every description we find in Scripture about heaven. So I read one review of the book and I kind of agree with it. It's a guy named Tim Challes, and he says, We know of three people from Scripture who were privileged to see heaven. All of these men, Stephen and the apostles, Paul and John, were alive when they were given a glimpse of the wonders of heaven. Don Piper, a Baptist pastor, claims to be a fourth, though unlike the other three, he first had to die. But 
This writer says he was dismayed to find that Don's heaven seems largely man-centered. In fact, if you were to ask your unbelieving friends and neighbors to describe heaven, they would probably create a place very much like this. You know, I, I think, again, his heaven is all about reuniting with people who've died. And it's all about relationships. That's what's chiefly heaven for him. And I think that that theme is what's so attractive for people, why people are buying this book up, because they're looking for some hope. They're looking for some hope. And he talks about being at seminars where people are flooding in, and he's speaking about his experience, and people come up to him for the book signing time and say, hey, you know, is, is Uncle Dave, is, is he in heaven? Did he make it? And Don is saying, yes, he's there. And, you know, and, and he's filling in this sort of hope that's surrounding lost loved ones. But as I look at Scripture and we look at our passage this morning, the hope of heaven is Jesus. And with Jesus at the front and center of heaven, that's what gels all of our joy in relationship with other people. That's what makes heaven all satisfying, and that's what makes our relationships and reunion with people in heaven all the sweeter. Let's look at our passage this morning. You see this balance in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Heaven is about Jesus and about reunion. It's both. And our proposition statement for this section is this, if you're taking notes. Paul comforts believers by casting the resurrection in two directions. Now, what I mean by that is Paul is talking about resurrection. And he talks about it in terms of Jesus' resurrection first. In other words, Jesus died. And historically speaking, he indeed rose again. And because Jesus rose again, you know what? We, one day in the future, will rise too. Jesus rose, and so we will rise. In essence, he's saying, if you're willing to rest your eternal soul on the fact that God raised Jesus, then you should be willing to understand and believe the truth that God will also raise you in glory one day too. He knew... Paul did, that they needed a pastor. He knew they needed some soul care because people were dying in this infant stage of the church of Thessalonica. People were being martyred for the faith. People were losing loved ones. Perhaps people were losing people in natural causes. They were dying. And he wanted to fill in what happens to people when they die. He knew they needed more info. And then ultimately, verse 14, they needed a starting place, a place to to regrip. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Last week we talked about what the resurrection is from a definition from Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem put it this way. He said, though Jesus' body was still a physical body, it was raised as a transformed body, never able to suffer, be weak or ill or die. He had put on immortality. You know what? One day in the future, you will be raised and you will put on immortality and you'll be like Jesus. That's Paul's number one point that he's making from this section. People were grieving to excess. They were hurting over lost loved ones. And he wants to refocus them on the resurrection. A heaven that's filled with reunion with lost loved ones where Jesus is at front and center. That's what resurrection is all about. And that's where we find true comfort and true hope. Now, he grounds the resurrection in the fact that Jesus rose in verse 14, and then he thrust the discussion to the future. And he says, look forward to your resurrection. And he does this by lifting the hearts and minds of this church heavenward. It's where resurrection becomes comforting, where it becomes real. And he lifts them heavenward by emphasizing two priorities, two priorities, two main things that are going to happen at the resurrection. First priority is that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. You find that tucked away at the, at the bottom of verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. That is a huge point for this church. He gives this point because he wants the church to take their eyes off of themselves a little bit more. Now, look, I give you from, from God's word the permission to grieve over lost loved ones. There's everything right about weeping with those who weep and entering into people's grief and helping them to shepherd people, to help people. But one of the greatest things that you can do for people is you're bringing them along to lift them out of some of the spiral and depression of grief is to lift their eyes off of themselves upward towards heaven. And that's what Paul is doing. In essence, Paul is understanding that they are concerned about these lost loved ones who've died. And he's believing that they think somehow that the dead in Christ are going to miss out on the resurrection. That, you know, they're going to be at some sort of disadvantage. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. The dead in Christ, those who are asleep, those who are already dead, they're going to rise first. And that's his first idea here. That's the first priority. Look, he addresses those who are alive in this section in verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he starts with the church in a scenario where the church is still here on earth. And he's including himself. He says, we who are alive. He's saying, look, if Jesus returns and we're alive... And that's where he's starting. We're the ones who are left until the coming of the Lord. And we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. He says this, as verse 15 points out, by a word from the Lord. He's talking authoritatively. This is more information that Paul got as a New Testament prophet. 
Acts 22 talks about how he received direct revelation from the Lord. We know he did in Acts 9 when he was saved. He was speaking directly to the risen Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 through 4 talks about how Paul was lifted up into what? The third heaven and he was receiving revelation there. So Paul has received this revelation as a word from the Lord that the people who are alive, the people who are on the earth when Jesus returns, they're not going to precede those who have already died. The word in verse 15 for coming, the coming of the Lord, is the word parousia. It means the bodily, physical return of Christ. You say, why is that important? Well, there are actually some groups that count themselves as part of the church that don't believe that Jesus is going to bodily return. They're called hyper-preterists. Now, you've got people who are preterists, and they're, you know, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and they basically interpret the book of Revelation as a history book. Preterist meaning past. It just, it's the idea that they're saying, look, when Israel was crushed by Rome in AD 70 in, you know, a, a documented history that we know that happened, when that happened, that really was the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation really isn't a future book for the preterist. But a preterist will say, however, Jesus is going to still return bodily for us. Okay? Now a hyper-preterist, they say, no, when Jesus came in your heart, that's the return of Christ. And I say that's someone talking themselves out of the gospel. Because you know what? Jesus is going to bodily return, and we know this from Scripture, and this is the gospel. And it's not that we should just say, well, I'm not a hyper-preterist. I'm not one of those. We should instead be saying, I'm not one of those, and my life is looking for Jesus' return. We can't wait for his return. You know why? Because this is the gospel. It is our hope. We're waiting for his bodily return, and nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away from you or me. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. Paul did. He said, for we who are alive. He was including himself in this scenario. The idea that he might be someone left until the coming of the Lord. We believe this too. But what Paul is doing here is he's making the priority the dead in Christ. Those who have already fallen asleep. Because he wants to answer a concern. And that is the concern that the church was beginning to say, you know, Jesus, he just died and he rose again 20 years ago. And there's a lot of heat that's being put on the church right now. We're being persecuted. Maybe Jesus is going to return in our lifetime. And we really believe this. However, certain people are dying off in the persecution. And we're beginning to to be wound up and upset over that as if they're going to miss out on Jesus's return. As if these enemies of the cross are gaining some kind of victory. And Paul just wants to correct that and say, no, they're going to have the best seat in the house when Jesus returns. The dead in Christ, they're the ones who are going to rise first. There's a lot of people today that that kind of get wound up and messed up with talk about the future, specifically about future theology or eschatology. They trade in their Bibles for their newspapers and begin to look through what's going on, even catastrophes that are happening like what happened in Haiti, and they begin to say, well, it's the end of the world. Well, you know, every generation has end-of-the-world scenarios, wars and rumors of wars and things that are catastrophes and leaders that are raised up and brought down. 
But we need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the scripture to find the appropriate balance, right? Where we live for Jesus' return. He could return today, right? And that would be great. But he could also return generations from now, and that would be perfect because that would have been the Lord's timing. Even Jesus, when he was here on earth, didn't know the day or the hour when he would return. So why should we know more than Jesus, right? You know, I was thinking, I was thinking about the, the single guy that said, you know, I, I've lived for Jesus' return solidly, but now I'm engaged and I'm going to be married, you know, and now I'm living for Jesus' return like in a couple more years, right, from now. Anyway, you'll get that later on when you listen to the tape. But all that to say, you know, you got to live in biblical balance regarding the Lord's return. Second Peter chapter 3 is a great place to find that balance. You've got scoffers and you've got people who are saying, you know, where is Jesus' return? And this is what Peter says. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, your heroes have died. They've fallen asleep. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter begins to fill in the fact that the world was made of water. It was formed out of water. And then ultimately God brought a deluge and destroyed the the world in that way. And then how now the world is existing and there's um, fire that's stored up and judgment that ultimately will destroy the world. So he's, Peter is panning out, giving a broader multi-generational perspective of the world to the scoffers. And then he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as what? One day. In other words, God is transcendent outside of time. And so for you to mock the Lord's return not happening yet is way off base. You don't even know who you're dealing with. This is the God of the universe who destroyed the world once, will do it again, and who is outside of your timetable. The Lord's return is perfect. So we've got to remember that and keep our vantage point from God's perspective, not our own. This is what Paul was doing. He was wanting the church's eyes to lift off of themselves and to think from heaven's perspective down. That's where he begins in verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So he's saying, look, don't be so concerned about those who've died. You need to switch things all around and think from heaven's perspective. The dead in Christ, they're going to rise first. <laughs> and Jesus is coming down. And you, you might get to join into this too. I mean, he's just, he's just really putting the emphasis on Christ. His timetable, the dead in Christ, they're with Jesus already. And then we who are here, who are still left, we get to join in too. He's flipping things on its head that way. He wants the church to think heaven down. So his first priority is the dead in Christ. He's prioritizing them to answer their questions, the church's questions about what's happened to them. But then secondly, he wants their perspective to change. He wants them to see the resurrection from heaven's vantage point. And as I just said, the dead in Christ, they're going to have the best seat in the house. This is going to be the first time in the history of the world, the universe, that every Christian that's ever lived in all times, in all generations, is going to be there with Jesus. And then this small group of Christians in this generation that are there at that time are going to raise in and join in this resurrection celebration. Glory to God. Two priorities. 
The dead in Christ is the first priority. The second priority, which is really the main priority, is the Lord. Who's the priority of heaven? Who is the priority of the resurrection? Jesus. You say, you know, it's hard for me to get excited about the resurrection or even to really think about heaven. You know what? Don't try so hard to think about the resurrection or the heaven or heaven and what that's like as much as you try to think about Jesus. Love Jesus and then you'll love heaven. Love Jesus and you'll want to be resurrected. Otherwise, you're kind of hanging out in your mind. If, you're, if your heaven's kind of man-centered, you're hanging out with people and a thousand years pass and you go, man, I was happy for a thousand years. And I, you know, I don't know if I can keep smiling for a thousand more, right? I mean, but if heaven is, if Jesus is your heaven, then you understand eternity and you want to be there forever. We'll touch on that again at the end. The priority is the Lord. These are displayed in, this, this priority is displayed in power. These are displays of power. Look at the first display of power. The first display of power that shows the Lord is the priority of heaven is that he descends from heaven. This is the God-man, the second member of the Trinity, coming to the world. That is a display of power. You say, yeah, well, on my eschatological timeline, you know, I've drawn a picture and there's the icon and, you know, Jesus is coming down to earth. No, no, no. Just, just think about it. The Lord of the universe is going to open the sky and come down to us. Is that a big deal? That is a big deal. That is a display of power. Like we've never seen and we cannot fathom. But if we're here, that is going to be an incredible display of power. Jesus alluded to this in John 11. We talked about it last week. Martha was really upset, and Mary also was upset that Lazarus, their brother, had died. And Jesus says, okay, I know you're upset. I am the resurrection and the life, right? I mean, that's, that was the point, was Jesus. It's not when's Lazarus going to raise up again. It's that the resurrection and the life is standing right in front of them. Jesus is the only one that can ever raise anyone in resurrection. And he's coming down to us, literally coming down from heaven as a king, as a king returning for his people. It's a common description of kings returning from battle. They're, they're coming down in this way, and he's coming down with all of his believing army behind him, backing him up. It's the heaven down perspective. The second display of power is how he is announced. He's announced in verse 16. It says, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, some people put all of that effect into one thing, and they say that's just Jesus announcing himself, saying, I am here, just like when he said, Lazarus, come forth, he's announcing himself. And I can see that. But I look at this more literally, and I believe specifically that this is the king being announced. A cry of command with the voice of an archangel. And I say that's Michael the archangel, the only archangel explicitly mentioned in scripture by name. Michael the archangel shouting on his behalf. And then you have a literal trumpet that's blaring and blasting on his behalf. That's what I see. And I build this from Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, 
the angels are depicted not as these little ethereal pixies, you know, kind of dancing around, you know, in the sky in their white robes. Angels are strong, incredibly impressive, and powerful beings. That's what the Bible describes as angels. Revelation 5, 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, this is around the throne room of God, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Obviously, Jesus is. Revelation 8 begins to depict all of the destruction that's going to take place in the seven-year tribulation, which I believe happens after this resurrection moment in 1 Thessalonians 4. Revelation 8, 7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood thrown upon the earth. Revelation 8, 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. 8.10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. 8.12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened. Just power effect moments surrounding shouting and trumpet blasting. That's what's happening. Parallel passage to our passage, the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we should all be, we shall all be what? Changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. This is all a big display of power. This is why I believe that the resurrection is not a secret event. A lot of people believe it is a secret event. I mentioned last week the kind of reel-to-reel series, The Thief in the Night, right? And a few of you admitted to seeing that and actually counseled with somebody else that was traumatized by those uh, (laughs) reel-to-reels. Anyway, you know the scene where where the wife is looking for the husband, right? She ate the corn chips and he paid attention, right, when the pastor came by and then his razor, his electric razor's going. And that's real traumatic stuff. Anyway, I, I don't think it's a secret event like that. I think it's more the idea of a trumpet that's blasting and God of the universe is showing up, right? I think it's very public and very real and that people are going to be raptured. And yes, will it be something that the world remaining needs to try to figure out? Sure. But I think it's very public. You know, a lot of people reference the, you know, the plane that's piloted by the Christian, you know, look out. Or, you know, my bumper sticker says, hey, we've got Christians on board. The thing's going to be unmanned. Well, you know, I don't think people will be as concerned about the plane and car as what's happening with God in that moment. Just a different perspective, thinking heaven down. Okay, here's a display of power at the end of Verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, we've already covered the fact that the dead in Christ are a priority. They're rising first. They're the ones who are raised with Christ coming as an army from heaven. You know, the point here is that we get to join in. They are first, but we are a close second, those who are remaining on earth. You ever heard... People say, you know, I I just hope that I'm raptured one day and I don't have to go through the death experience and die. And, you know, I I just I hope we can just be one sweet little family tucked away in our neighborhood and we'll just raise up and, you know, it'll be pain. Well, no, I, I, I just think that Paul is saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's 
get there and be with Jesus now, right? Let's, let's get a mindset where we, we shrug off the love for this world and we love Jesus so much that we want to be the dead in Christ now. And, and that if we're remaining, if we're still here, that's great. And we'll get to join in then. It's just a different perspective. The word caught up together, um, as we find in verse 17, is the rapture phrase. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That's the Latin word, rapturo. Greek word turns Latin there is rapturo. That's where we get the word rapture. It's the idea of being snatched or caught away or taken by force. Some people see the elevator up moment a little bit more slowly than that. But if you take the original language literally, it's kind of a catching away. But again, I don't think it's a secret thing. A lot of people say, well, this happens and it's, you know, it's, it's the thief in the night and so you wake up and what happened? No, it's, it's the thief in the night idea is the suddenness of it. You're, you need to be on alert and expect it. But it is public at the same time. Matthew 24 talks about the two men who will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. No, but there's nothing to indicate in this passage that when the person leaves that they keep grinding in the mill. Right? They keep cutting the grass, you know. Well, where'd you go, you know? No, it's, it's a public. I mean, the point is, stay awake. Stay awake. You need to be aware. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour that you will not expect. Stay awake. It's loud. It's miraculous. Okay. A couple more digressions. <laughs> you know, some people get into mentalities where, where they just want the get me out of here mentality. And I know that I just said to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that is part of God's word. But I want to balance that with the fact that we do have relationships here. It's normal to want to achieve goals here on earth. And there's a balance that should be struck. Achievements, there's art and literature and things to enjoy. But, you know, then there's sickness. And then there's ailments. And we know of loved ones. We know people who are beloved in our flock, people who are in the extended church in Anchorage who are hurting and suffering. And it's in those moments that we counterbalance things, right? And we say, you know, we want them to be with Jesus. We want that for them. And that's the balance that we find in the resurrection. Here's another digression. You know, when Jesus returns, have you ever thought, how is it that anybody could deny Jesus at that moment. How could you, you know, he's returning bodily. Why doesn't everybody believe at that moment? Well, I was just looking at the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen there in Revelation 20 when Jesus comes back to earth and rules for a thousand years. In verses 7 through 9, it talks about how at the end of him ruling as the perfect ruler and leader, Satan is released and he's actually allowed to gather an army from the four corners of the earth, the world... It says Gog and Magog, whatever that means, but just gathering the nations together for battle like the sand of the sea and the march to a broad plain and ultimately fire will come down from heaven and consume Jesus' enemies. You know what that tells us? It tells us that it's a real privilege that we do believe in the resurrection, that we have this kind of hope because most people, because of the hardness of their hearts and the deceitfulness of sin, will reject Jesus, even if Jesus is splitting the eastern sky. And coming back in power and authority. People will say, I'm not going with him. Why do you want to go? Why do you want to go and be with Jesus? 
You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, I'm excited about the resurrection because it's in the Word, and God's opened my eyes, and I believe it's going to happen. But what's, what's under that? What fuels that excitement? I think it's the gospel. I think it's the gospel. What is heaven's song? Heaven's song in Revelation chapter 19. I'm skipping to kind of the end in my punchline here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, rather. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, after this preaching moment, after I'm done talking about the resurrection, I just want the resurrection to live in your heart a little bit longer. And so that's why I'm kind of going here and I'm saying, look, dig deep because I want you to connect with the idea that you need to want heaven. And how do you want heaven? You want heaven because you realize that your sins are forgiven and you are redeemed and you are free from your sin. Why? So that you can go and be resurrected forever to be with Jesus forever to sing his praises because you've been freed from your sins. You've been ransomed. The gospel, that's how you get excited about heaven, is thinking about the gospel song, thinking about why you want to go there. Why do you want Jesus in heaven? Well, you want him because he saved you, because he made you whole, because he put you in no condemnation status. And I just want to make sure I insert that point because I want this resurrection theme to live in your heart. The resurrection is the next gospel event But the reason why that gospel event should be meaningful to you is because he saved you for it. He rescued you. He gave you a heart to want the resurrection. That's when it becomes hope-giving and life-transforming. We want to be reunited with our Lord. A lot of people get very very me-centered about heaven. It's kind of where we began. They get man-centered. They think, you know, I want heaven just because I want to get out of here and I'm I'm sick of my life. Or I want heaven because I just want to be back with those people that I've lost in this lifetime. Now, there are good things about that. There's good things about the fact that we're not going to have suffering and sickness and death and we're not going to have our sin hangover anymore, right? And we're going to be able to shrug that off when we go to heaven. And we are going to be reunited with those with whom we've lost but ultimately, we need to want a God-centered heaven. One, one pastor put it this way. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever see, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? It's a key question. The answer should be no. I want Jesus. I want to see Jesus, the one who died for me. That's the apex of heaven. That's the pinnacle of heaven. That's what makes being forever with people glorious. Look at this. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, verse 17, together with them, with people in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Are we going to be with our loved ones? Yes. Is the priority the loved ones? 
Not really. The priority is the Lord. He's the centerpiece of our relationships and our involvement in heaven. I like the idea that we're caught up in the clouds. I think that that points to the glory of God. These are power displays. The clouds are not fluffy white cumulonimbus clouds. This is the Shekinah glory, I believe. This is the presence of God that was over Israel and over the Old Testament sacrifices. And it's the presence of God that swept up Jesus when he ascended to the right hand of God at glory. And this is the presence of God again when we are taken up in the air. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. It's a great application. You want an application? Use these words on this page to help other people. Don't be afraid. I I think sometimes we're afraid to talk about things that seem too lofty. But we need to just bring bring it down to our lives and our level and talk to each other about the fact that, you know what? The next gospel event is we are going to be resurrected. Someone's down. Someone needs hope. Someone needs counsel. Just talk through this passage with them. Try to get people to think heaven down, to change their perspective to being more God-centered. Oftentimes, it's true, we need to just weep with those who weep and just be there for people. But you know what? When people lose loved ones, it's not just the immediate moment that we need to counsel and help them. It's six months later, a year, two years. You better remember, you send that note, You pay that visit, you go there in the conversation, and you watch people melt because they're still hurting. And that might be the time to open up these words. Encourage one another with these words. That's what we've just talked through. And it's an exhortation. It's not just a gentle encouragement. It's, It's calling people to believe in this part of the gospel. Okay, a few take home points. Number one. No matter how difficult your life is, nothing can change the fact that Jesus is coming back. Nobody can take that away from the Christian. You will always be with Jesus and you'll always be reunited with your loved ones in the Lord. Number two, leave heaven's questions ultimately in the Lord's hands. Now, why do I say this? There's a lot of talk about what heaven is like. There are books that are out there and a lot of people who are who are trying to unpackage what the afterlife will be like in detail. And I think that those details can be fun and unique to explore. And there are some details given to us in Scripture. But primarily we need to remember that heaven is about Jesus. And we need to leave some of those philosophical, theological, or heavy-duty questions in the Lord's hands. Here's a question that I had asked. Will I surf in the millennium? I mean, who knows? Who knows, right? That was a little bit of a joke. Anyway, but... Uh, It doesn't matter. That's the point. The point is that we're going to be with the Lord. How will we relate to our spouse and children in heaven? Right? I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached Jesus about that. I think it was explicitly the Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection and they were trying to trap Jesus in regards to it. But that's not the point. The point Jesus made is we're all going to be like the angels in heaven worshiping the Lord. Don't worry about the relational dimension. Well, I despair over people I loved who died without Christ. I don't see that in Scripture. But again, 
These are questions we can leave with the Lord. How can I focus on my loved ones and Jesus at the same time? I think he's big enough to work that out. Will What will day-to-day functions look like? It doesn't matter because we won't get tired anymore, right? No, anyway, it's just, you know, leaving it with God. Philosophical questions ad infinitum, ad nauseum. All right, number three. Anticipating Jesus' return and your resurrection doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy your world and your life And I'll add today, right now, you can enjoy your life today. God has given us marriage. He's given us family. He's given us work. He's given us ways to achieve goals and enjoy our lives. And we need to hold these things in balance as we also hope for heaven. Not just looking at our world and going, man, I hate the world. I hope it could just get shrink-wrapped and thrown away. You know, that's not how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to say, well, I love my father's world and I hate sin and I hate the flesh and I hate the devil and I want Jesus, but I love the world and I love Jesus. That's the way I think we find a biblical balance. For you to enjoy your hope of heaven, number four, heaven cannot ultimately be about you. Don't think of heaven first and foremost in terms of you. Think of heaven first and foremost in terms of the glory of God, and then heaven will become attractive and be gospel centered. Think about it being all about the gospel song, and that's what gets heaven, I think, really into focus and in our hearts. Practice heaven now by focusing on Jesus and others more than yourself. And then lastly, and I'm just returning to kind of last week's message you have permission to grieve. It's all right to cry with those who are crying and weep with those who are weeping and to minister and to enter into people's grief here and now. When I say that we take our eyes off of ourselves and put it heavenward and we think heaven down, that doesn't mean that we should not in real time grieve and grieve with people who need our help. But we need to grieve not as others do, but as those who have hope. We need to grieve by faith. And if you grieve with people or grieve for yourself by faith, you'll heal. And you'll be a minister and an agent to help people heal. Your sorrow should be mingled with comfort. And this way, your grief, your grieving or grief will be for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this passage. Lord, this is a monumental passage because it represents an event that is yet to take place an event that we are looking forward to. And I pray, God, that as we meditate upon these words, that it is an encouragement to us. I pray that if there are any here who do not yet know you, who do not have the hope of the resurrection, that they in their hearts now would believe that this part of the gospel would be the seed that opens their eyes for them to believe that, God, they could mark this moment as the entrance into the hope of the resurrection. And one day when they smile at Jesus' side with a resurrection body, worshiping and praising you, that they would just be rejoicing in the fact that you opened their eyes on this day at the beginning of 2010. I pray that if there are those who are grieving, that we as the body of Christ can minister to them effectively and powerfully for your glory. Lord, let us grieve, but let us grieve in hope by faith in the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we close. This morning has been a gospel morning and a morning where we want to give glory to God, and I believe we have. If there are any of you who do need counseling, if you need prayer, if you need a pastor or 
um, a godly woman to raise you up in prayer and to minister to you. We want to be available to you. Just see us out front or uh, uh, see us later on in the week, and we want to minister to your needs. I would also just encourage you as the body of Christ to follow through with this passage and make it your aim this week to encourage each other with these words, with the gospel, with your relationship, and with your actions this week as the body. Have a wonderful morning together. You're dismissed.